Isaiah in chapter 9, and, and when you find it, would you go ahead and please stand? I'm going to read this, uh, this, the entirety of this passage that we're going to be looking into together this morning. Isaiah 9 and verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, <clears throat> he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, I am thankful for the promise that is given that what we ask in the name of your Son, you will do. And this morning we ask that because of Jesus Christ, because of his atoning sacrifice for us, that you would reveal him to our sight, that you would open your word to our understanding. I pray that it would go forth with power. And Father, I ask that in spite of my weakness, you would show yourself strong. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It was December 24th of 1914, and the world was at war. And for the soldiers fighting in the trenches across Belgium and northern France, it was the darkest Christmas Eve they had ever known. The fighting that winter had been at its most brutal in a war that would claim almost 20 million lives before its end. So if you can picture the scene where all along this western front, the Allied and German armies are they're dug into their defensive trenches in the cold and the wet and the mud. The enemy lines in some places were only a few hundred yards away. And in between is no man's land a barren landscape littered with barbed wire, bomb craters, and bodies. But that Christmas Eve, <clears throat> the guns fell silent in the afternoon, and as nighttime fell, 
something happened that would shock the world for generations to come. One British soldier in a letter home recounts how in the quiet and in the dark, a single clear voice was heard singing, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, Silent Night, Holy Night. And as this soldier listened, he could hear more voices from the German side begin to sing. And then from his own trench, he heard in English more voices joining in. When the song ended, a group from the British side started up a loud verse of the first Noel, and the German soldiers joined them. After this, another soldier writes, All down our line of trenches, there came to our ears a greeting unique in war. English soldier, English soldier, a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. As the night wore on to dawn, a night made easier by the songs from the German trenches and from our broad lines, laughter and Christmas carols, not a shot was fired. The following Christmas morning, those soldiers from both sides crept out of their trenches to meet in no man's land. They helped each other bury their fallen, exchanged small gifts, even played a game of soccer with about 150 people per team. The Christmas truce of 1914 became a ray of hope amid the darkness of war. And in nearly every account, it began with carols of the newborn king. And this morning, much like the song of that German soldier which brought hope to a darkened battlefield, our text this morning, a song of Emmanuel from the prophet Isaiah, brings hope to a people in darkness. The title of our sermon this morning is A Song of Hope in the Royal Sun. Now this passage is set in a section of Isaiah from chapters 7 through 12 called the Book of Emmanuel or the Consolation of Emmanuel. These six chapters are rich in messianic prophecy. And part of what makes the message of this of this song so striking is the dark backdrop of despair that it is set against. See, Isaiah is prophesying to a people in crisis. The shadow of judgment is looming over the nation. And even as he writes this passage, the curtain is falling on the northern kingdom of Israel and oppression and exile is coming to Judah. So in the previous chapter, What we read is how the prophet is warning of this coming flood of the Assyrian invasion. In chapter 9, he also speaks of a people who sit in darkness, who dwell in a land of deep darkness. And specifically, he is referring to those inhabitants of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what is going on with these people? Uh, the land that was allotted to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali or to the re- are this region to the north and to the west of the Sea of Galilee. It was known in its day as the Galilee of the nations for the mixed multitude that was living there. It was remote. It was exposed to the surrounding enemies. And during the Assyrian War, when Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian king, first invaded this northern kingdom in 732 BC. Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee, was first to fall into enemy hands. It was overrun 
its cities destroyed. According to 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 29 and 30, we read that during the reign of the king Pekah, all of the lands of Zebulun and the people were carried captive to Assyria. Now, the Assyrians kept historical records of their conquests, and it's interesting to note that to this day in, in Iraq, on a relief on a wall, you can read this record of Tiglath-Pileser's invasion of the northern kingdom. Uh, the, the account says, the town of Samaria only did I leave. The districts of the country I left in a fog or a snowstorm, as if speaking of the, the smoke of the cities and the fields that he had burned. Of the town Hinaton, or Hanaton, which was 12 miles north of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, I carried away 650 prisoners of the town. Of the town of Cana, I carried away 650 prisoners. Of the town of Japhadai, 650 prisoners. All of these people together, with their possessions, I brought away. This is a time of deep Darkness, But this invasion by this Assyrian king was itself not the true cause of all of this suffering. God tells us what the cause was. In another passage where Isaiah says, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and ever under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Sin and the curse of sin was the true cause of the darkness and captivity that these people were under. And amid all of this engulfing darkness, in Isaiah 9, the prophet looks to the light of a day that is coming when God is going to do something new. The prophet's message in chapter 9 is that the darkness is not going to last. It may seem hopeless now, but the sun is going to rise with the coming of the Messiah. He directs our gaze, he directs the people's gaze to this Messiah who was promised. And his message in these verses, in this song, is set your hope in the power, the person, and in the promise of the royal son. In verses 1 through 5, Isaiah speaks of the blessings of the kingdom that would be ushered in by the birth of of this promised son. And so our first point this morning is that we are to hope in the royal son for his saving power. Now these verses, in verses one through five, they're full of these contrasts between the current trouble of the people and the coming kingdom. Because as Isaiah is saying, when the king comes, everything changes. Now look down in verses 1 through 5. We're going to see these effects of his saving power. 
First, we see anguish is ended. But nevertheless, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Gloom, this dark cloud of sorrow and suffering that is experienced by these people, by her who was in anguish, those under sin's curse will be ended by the royal son. The saving power of this king who is coming will bring an end to the suffering of his people. Isaiah says, hope in him. So what is another effect of the coming king? We see shame turned to honor in verse 2. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These rebellious people, these outcasts, he, the father, had brought into contempt, humbling them by visiting upon them the just consequence of their sin. They are shamed before him. They are brought low. But, Isaiah says, in the latter time, he has made glorious. He has honored. The word denotes this weight of glory that is imparted by the presence of the coming king. Isaiah says, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, three designations for the same place. It's as if Isaiah is saying, in case you're wondering where the king is going to be, that's where he's going to be. And in the book of Matthew, we're told that this prophecy is um, realized when Christ is said to have gone from Nazareth to Capernaum to preach the gospel of the kingdom. The land that was despised, the outcasts, that in Isaiah's day, who were the first to fall into captivity, will be the first to be freed when they see the light of life of Jesus Christ. Their shame will be turned to honor by his saving power. In verse 2, we see another effect of his kingdom in that death is brought to life by the promised son. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In Matthew's gospel, quoting this passage, we learn that this darkness is the darkness of the shadow of death. We could read this, that the people who dwell in the land of death have seen a great light, the light of life, the life that is in Jesus Christ. Now, to much of Isaiah's prophecies, there is this depth of meaning that we should keep in mind as we go through, where often these literal, tangible events that he describes point beyond themselves to greater spiritual realities. So the people dwelling in darkness are the remnant living in Zebulun and Naphtali post-exile, and they are the people of Jesus' day in Galilee. And they are all God's elect who dwell in the darkness of death because of sin before conversion. This prophecy was fulfilled when the light of life, Jesus Christ, came to Capernaum in Galilee, and it was fulfilled on the day that the light of the gospel shone into our darkened hearts and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. The people dwelling in the shadow of death 
have seen a great light. Death is turned to life by the royal son. But what else will this king do? In verse 3, we also see sorrow turned to joy. Look down in verse 3 of chapter 9. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. You have increased its joy. Literally, this, this phrase means you have magnified, you have nourished, you have built up to make great the abundant joy of your people. And the joy of his people is the desire of this king. It is his gift. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The response of this people to the saving power of the king is an outpouring of thankful celebration at his abundant provision and for the victory that he wins for his people. Another effect that we see in this verse of the coming king and his reign is that bondage is turned to freedom. Look down at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So what does Isaiah mean by this phrase, as on the day of Midian? Well, you'll remember how in the early part of the book of Judges, we read how the northern uh, part of Israel had become completely overrun by these marauding armies of Midianites, their neighbors to the west. And they were under the thumb of this people. They were under oppression and slavery. And God at that time raised up this unlikely champion in Gideon who led an army of 300 men against a vastly superior force, tens of thousands of these Midianite soldiers. And God gave them into his hand. God gave a, a victory that only he could receive glory for. And the people divided the spoil. And they rejoiced in the victory that God had given. And what he is saying is that this Messiah, this promised son, would give such a victory to his people. And not only does the king win this decisive victory over our enemies, but he brings war to an end altogether. Look down in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is the prophet saying here? Every garment rolled in blood, burned in the fire. Why are these implements of, of war being used as kindling? It's because they're not good for anything else. The reign of the sun has made them obsolete. He brings an eternal peace. When the king comes, everything changes. Sorrow and death, warfare and oppression are brought to an end. And in their place, this royal son, this Messiah, gives joy, freedom from sin, and peace. Isaiah 51 speaks of these blessings when he says, For the Lord will comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. 
thanksgiving and melodious song. So the redeemed of the Lord will return and enter Zion with singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. Now in verse 6, Isaiah tells us that the great cause, the reason for all of this joy and light and peace is this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. An heir, a representative, a champion. What good news is this? This is where the prophet is finding his hope amid the darkness. This is where he is directing the people's attention, the birth of the coming king. Notice how in this verse, the humanness of this king is unmistakable, born of our flesh and blood, a son of man. He says, to us, a son is given, literally has been donated to us. This royal son is God's gift given freely It's impossible not to think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Unto us a son is given, and the government, or the dominion, the rule, shall be upon his shoulder. What is this telling us? It is telling us that the responsibility for the rule of this kingdom has been laid upon the shoulders of the royal son, the child to be born. By God. He will be invested by God with all authority and responsibility to rule. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The kingdom is his by divine right. He is the anointed one. And as we have seen, his reign changes everything. So in these first five verses, Isaiah has directed the people's hope to the royal son for his saving power, answering the question of what will this king do? And in verse six, he points us to who will this king be? Telling the people, hope in the royal son for his transcendent person. Look down in verse six. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Old Testament world, names and their meanings bore a lot more significance than they do in our our present culture. A Jew believed that you had to know a person's name before you could truly know them. And they saw this, this vital link between the meaning of someone's name and their character. The name reveals the person. So Isaiah's audience certainly would have understood this, and they realized that by the prophet sharing these names of the king who is coming, he was revealing key truths about his very nature. His name is who he is. And these five names reveal the transcendent person of the royal son. Now some of you are thinking, wait a second, can Carrie count I see four names. And you're right, depending on which translation you have. While some Bible translations, like the King James Version, the American Standard Version, 
include a comma after wonderful, distinguishing it as a standalone name. Others omit the comma, treating it as a modifier of the word counselor. And both readings, both understandings have their proponents and their merits. But I believe that there is a strong case for wonderful as being a distinct name. First of all, in the Hebrew, it is not an adjective, but a noun. Our closest word would actually be wonder. His name is wonder. Secondly, in the Masoretic Hebrew text that most of the translations we have are based upon, there are reader's marks which hyphenate the other nouns in this list, but there are none which connect wonderful and counselor. And thirdly, it sounds really awesome in Handel's Messiah when they sing it this way. <laughs> that may not be the best reason I have, but Amen. it's a reason. His name is wonderful. And this word that Isaiah gives here, Pele, is a word so powerful, it is only ever used to describe the works of God, never the works of man. It means extraordinary, beyond comprehension. And it is used throughout the scriptures for God's acts of judgment and redemption in the saving of his people. The plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire by day and the cloud by night, the water from the rock, manna from heaven, these are wonders of God's redeeming work. But none compares to the Christ. It's his name. Now for Isaiah's audience, this would have been a stunning revelation because this word they knew to only ever be connected with divinity, yet Isaiah applies it to the child, to the king who was coming. Now, on this side of the New Testament, we know who Isaiah is talking about. The child, the royal son to be born, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And how wonderful is he? He is a wonder in every aspect of his person. Fully God and fully man. In his birth, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his love and humility, in his perfect obedience to the Father. What a wonder he is. What a wonder in his vicarious atonement through his death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead. We should stand in awe. We should respond like Isaiah does when he writes in chapter 25, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. His name is who he is, and he is wonderful. But he is also counselor. In the Old Testament, it was a necessary requirement of a king that they possess the wisdom to give counsel. In fact, in some places in Scripture, we see the word counselor and king being used synonymously. Now, this king Isaiah speaks of would have no need of counselors to surround himself with. He is the counselor. According to Isaiah 11, verse 2, we read that upon him, upon this son, the spirit of wisdom would rest. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, we read how the people who heard Jesus' teaching were truly astonished because 
He spoke with authority, not like the scribes. His name is who he is, and he is counselor. He is also the mighty God. Now to those today who would seek to deny the deity of Christ, this phrase is somewhat problematic. Um, which is why for more than a century, liberal scholars have done their best to explain away its meaning. And a quick internet search on this verse will inevitably turn up one so-called expert after another, claiming that this name in the Hebrew, El Gabor, literally God hero, actually just means God-like hero. And while it is true that the plural Elohim of this word is sometimes used in the scriptures to denote a little g God or a God-like person, the singular El that Isaiah uses is only ever used to describe Yahweh. No one except this Messiah King and Yahweh are ever called the mighty God. El means God with a big G, and it is the right name for this Messiah. Now, Gabor, this is interesting, I love this. Gabor simply means hero. David's mighty men, his elite warriors, were known as the Giborim, or the heroes. Now, this speaks not only of one who has great power, but who wields it in valorous action on behalf of God's people. There are many Gibor in the Bible, many heroes, but only one El Gibor, the God hero. He's the royal son. There could be no more heroic or mighty work than that which was done by our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross when the lion of the tribe of Judah took on the power of sin and death and hell and came out the victor, doing battle for his people. His name is who he is, and he is the mighty God, the heroic God. But he is also the everlasting father. Now, a king as a father to his people is a common ideal that we see in the scriptures. And the biblical model of fatherhood is one who leads with compassion, who cares for, who disciplines, who protects, and who provides for his children. And this Davidic king would be such a father to his people. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Hebrews 12, 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. We see this father-like heart of Jesus for his people in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9, where he says, Those that I love, I rebuke and discipline. Now, what sets this king Isaiah speaks of apart according to this name is that he is an eternal father. And the word eternal here carries the meaning of time without limits, always and forever. He everlastingly cares and protects and provides for his children. He will never not be a father to them. His name is who he is, and he is the everlasting father. He is also the prince of peace. 
the great victory that we are told that this king will have over the enemies, over his people, over sin and over death means a restoration of peace. And having won peace, this royal son reigns eternally in peace. You can almost feel the prophet's longing for this king to come in this final name that he gives for the royal son. The darkness, the suffering of war and of sin are what cause him to lift his eyes to the day of the birth of this child. And his song is an outpouring of Isaiah's hope and expectation in the one who is to be the prince of peace, who will conquer the enemies of sin and death. His victory brings peace. But the greatest peace that this Messiah would bring would not be between men and men, but between man and God himself. It is man's sin and rebellion, as we have seen, that have created enmity with God and earned his just wrath. And Jesus Christ, the royal son, through his propitiatory sacrifice, has made peace. In Colossians in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. His name is who he is, and he is the Prince of Peace. In this song of Emmanuel that Isaiah has directed the people's hopes to the royal son who is coming for his power and for his person, what he will do and who he will be. And as if to answer the question, how could something this wonderful happen? How can this be true? He closes this hymn with a final glorious crescendo in verse 7 of assurance in the guarantee of God. He says, hope in the royal son for his divine promise. Look down at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now these words, on the throne of his father David and over his kingdom, represent the fulfillment of an ancient promise made by God to David. And this forms the basis of the nation's messianic hopes. It's found in 2 Samuel in chapter 7 where we see God telling David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. There's that crucial word, the seed that we learned about last week. I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established Forever, this promise we call the Davidic covenant is linked with an even more ancient promise given by God in the garden to one day provide the offspring who would crush the serpent's head and deliver his people from death. So God says to David that this promised offspring, this promised Savior, would be 
a descendant of his line, and would reign over his kingdom. Now, not only does this prophecy of Isaiah reaffirm the Davidic covenant, it actually expands it in one key regard. See, in 2 Samuel, God told David, I will establish your kingdom. But notice what Isaiah says of the son who is coming. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it forevermore. So according to Isaiah, it is the Messiah himself who will establish and sustain the kingdom for all eternity. There could be no more certain statement of the divine nature of this Messiah than the promise of this verse. The Son born to us is God of very God. God himself, Son of God and Son of Man. Now, how can something this wonderful be? How, how do we know that this, for the people who are receiving this promise, how can they know that this could come to be? And Isaiah concludes his song of hope with this final statement of God's purpose. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in the ancient world, a covenant was more than simply a promise it was an agreement, a sacred contract that was considered to be entered into with one's whole being. And when God made his covenants of promise to Adam, to Abraham, and to David, he staked all of his infinite glory upon their fulfillment. He is all in. And the zeal which God has for the glory of his name is the guarantee of the salvation that would come through the Messiah. Now in closing this morning, as we have seen all of this light and life and joy and peace in the Messiah, as we have been called to set our hope in his power, in his person, and in his promise, I want to address what does this mean for us? How do we respond to this truth? How do we practically progress in obedience by hoping in him? Well, hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It is a confident expectation that is based on faith. It is the exercise of faith at the heart level. Hope is that inward attitude of the heart that looks beyond our circumstances, however dark, to Christ placing our trust in his power, in his person, and in his promise of salvation and a kingdom. He is our hope. But hope in Christ cannot coexist with fear. And yet fear and anxiety is sometimes how we respond to the darkness around us. Like the prophet Isaiah, we live in a gloomy, fallen, and dark world. We live daily with the effects of sin, whether it be our own sin or that of others against us. And if our response in the face of this trouble is to fear or to despair, then we are failing to hope in Christ. The psalmist dealt with this when he wrote, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. We cannot manufacture this hope. It is something which God works in us as he reveals to us 
Jesus Christ through the word. So if you find that in the darkness, in times of trouble, you experience more fear than confident faith, you must confess that as sin to God. Turn from it and ask him to grow hope in you as you spend time in the word getting to know Jesus. Now for some of you, you have never known a hope such as this because you have never known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have never submitted to his kingship. If you have not come to Jesus in faith, turning from your sin and placed your trust in his finished work on the cross, then you are walking in darkness. You live in the shadow of death and are dead in your sins. But the good news of the gospel this morning is that God's son, Jesus Christ, who is the light of life, came into our darkness, was born as a man, lived a sinless life that we could not, died on the cross in the place of sinners, and rose again from the dead so that all who believe in him can have life and light in him. You must turn from your sin to Christ. Put your faith in him, and you will be saved. He will transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Isaiah's message this morning to us is to hope in the power and the person and the promise of the king, the king who came and was born in Bethlehem for us. His name is Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Beloved, this Christmas season, and long, long afterward, may the hope of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, fill your hearts. He's the promised offspring, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the King who will one day return in power to reign and of the increase of his rule and of peace, there will be no end. Our Father, we thank you for the ministry of your word in our hearts this morning. Thank you for the power of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his infinite humility, that though he is equal with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but denied himself, made himself of no reputation and came in the form of a servant and died on a cross. I pray that we might delight in him, rejoice before him and set our hope in who he is. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.